You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is James Martin Cole. James, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, as you said, my name's James. Uh, I'm with the Austin chapter of Democratic Socialists of America. I'm secretary of Austin DSA. Uh, I'm, I'm, in the, the way that DSA works is that it's sort of a, a lot of federated chapters. So I can't speak on, on behalf of the, the entire organization. Uh, it's set based on, you know, how I see it, uh, from Austin. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. So yeah, you're speaking uh, speaking on uh, behalf of yourself and your right. experiences in Austin, but you're not like a national s- <laughs> spokesman for the for the organization. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so that's gonna be our topic today: uh, DSA, uh, Democratic Socialists of America. Um, and uh, hopefully, uh, this will be kind of like an explainer for people who have never heard of the group before or have heard something about it recently, because it's been more in the news in the past like six weeks than. <laughs> in like the past five years um and then we'll maybe get a little deeper into like uh some of the uh issues surrounding dsa so first off uh if someone has never heard of dsa before what is it so uh dsa stands for democratic socialists of america it's the largest socialist organization in the united states right now with about i think we just passed forty-seven thousand members uh here in austin we've got a little over a thousand uh, it's a, it's a democratic, uh, democratically run organization. Uh, the term that you hear a lot is multi-tendency, which just means that there's no, no one political line that we necessarily adhere to other than, you know, the principles of, of democracy and socialism, whatever that means to, you know, the individuals who, who choose to join the organization. Um, so there's no one specific line that everyone agrees on, uh, like, like some of the kind of uh, uh, what they call centralist organizations. Um, but it, it's uh, an activist organization and an organization of organizers. It's not, it's not a separate political party, um, though sometimes they run candidates. Uh, that's not technically true, I'm sorry. Uh, they, sometimes they work with the uh, Democratic Party. Some chapters choose not to work with the Democratic Party, uh, and they do lots of non-electoral uh, work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, how long have you been a member of the organization? Uh, I joined the organization like a lot of members, uh, right before, uh, the inauguration of Donald Trump. I think between the election and the inauguration. Yeah, that's when I kind of start, became more aware of it. I mean, I think maybe I, I maybe just heard something about it before 2016 and then I started seeing more about it. Uh, online and then it and then it seemed like membership really uh yeah increased around the time trump was elected um right. so is was it trump's election the thing that spurred you to to join yeah you know it, it, i think um sort of a lot of people became aware of the organization during the bernie sanders campaign uh and and i think like a lot of uh people i sort of started following it a lot closer then and then the election of Donald Trump sort of galvanized a lot of people, myself included, uh, to get more directly involved in DSA. Um, I, I, I think there, you know, a few thousand people joined over the course of the Sanders presidency. There was another big bump um, 
after Trump was elected, another big bump after the inauguration, and then another huge spike uh, in the last six or seven weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you uh, were you a, a socialist before you joined, or maybe before 2016? Yeah, I, I think like a lot of people who consider themselves socialists, for me that that meant mostly like reading and talking to people and being frustrated with the, <laughs> the state of politics, but but not being organized, um, you know, in any in any sort of official capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing that has happened in the past six weeks to uh, spur DSA, DSA recruitment is the election of Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez mm-hmm. uh, uh, beating out, I mean, everyone knows about this, beating out uh, Joe Crowley, who was like in the Democratic leadership and had been in Congress for 20 years. Um, and, you know, she's like a young, uh, energetic, uh, enthusiastic person uh, who's uh, very charismatic and she's a member of DSA. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did you, what did you think like when that, when that happened, the, the night that she won? Yeah, it was, it was really surprising to be honest. Um, you know, I, I don't know, uh, everything that, that goes on in, in all the different DSA chapters around the country, but I know some, some chapters have been very well organized around specific, uh, uh, electoral campaigns. Um, you know, I'd seen the, the video that, that circulated her campaign video and, and heard a lot about her. Uh, and really like you think about these super entrenched, uh, democratic party power brokers and, and the idea that, that a DSA chapter, uh, and, and allied organizations and organizations that were, they're working in coalition with would be able to get this, this, you know, very young woman, uh, to, take down one of the major democratic power power brokers in a, a city that's really solidly democratic. It was, was really surprising and energizing and, and, you know, it, it's sort of showing how the, the kind of existing power structures are, are a lot weaker than, than we're generally led to believe and how with intentional organizing and, and dedicated work, there's there's serious differences that we can make and 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 serious impacts we can make on those structures. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was yeah it was it was very surprising and I, um, you know, I hadn't heard of her before a couple weeks before this is happening and I would see retweets of her campaign um, videos and stuff and I was like, you know, it, you can only pay attention to so many things and I didn't really know right. what this was. I was like, I, I don't, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to pay attention focus on this at all because. This like doesn't you know this isn't going to be a thing. So I so I had no idea about her. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it was. I think it's extra surprising. So I live in Western New York, and mm-hmm. uh, New York state politics is super corrupt. Um, just mm-hmm. today, Sheldon Silver, the former speaker of the oh, I see the either the state senate or the state assembly, I can't remember, was was sentenced to seven years in prison. Um, and the districts are all drawn. I mean, on the state level, especially the districts are drawn um, very favorably for incumbents. Um, and the same people get reelected year after year after year. There's, there's the local political power broker in Rochester is this guy named David Gant, who is, uh, either in his late seventies or early eighties. And he's been there like 30 years or more. <laughs> and he has a, um, personal policy that he hasn't talked to the media. Um, oh, cool. Great. So, so there's a video of a local reporter going up to ask him about something. And he just says, I don't talk to the media. And yet he get he gets reelected, you know, right? 
consistently and will until he uh, dies. I assume. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, the, so politics in New York State is very depressing um, uh, between the corruption and the like entrenched interests uh, continuing to, <laughs> to control everything. Um, yeah. So it, it it was interesting. And and what do you think about ha- the role that she's taken on since since her victory? So she's like assured. You know, her district. She's like assured to win. Um, unless something crazy happens, um, like she'll be in Congress. And so she's right. like kind of doing, you know, endorsing other people and kind of doing like barnstorming type things with Bernie Sanders. What do you think about that? It, it's incredibly exciting. I mean, I think there's, you know, I, I like to stress that like the majority of the work that DSA does isn't in the electoral realm. Right. Um, uh, but, but by the same token, we can't afford to ignore that elections are happening and and she's galvanized a lot of I think DSA chapters and people who are curious about DSA but but maybe on the fence about actually joining or going to a meeting uh, to get involved and and her her you know like one of the arguments you hear a lot against socialism or democratic socialism is that you know it, it can work in like New York City and it can work in Chicago but there's not like a broad appeal for it across the country. And I think Ocasio-Cortez was in Kansas the other day uh, and, you know, with uh, Bernie Sanders and they they had rented out one room, but uh, the room sold out immediately. So they rented out a bigger one and that sold out immediately. And like they're they're it, the people across the country are really receptive to this ideology um, and, and to this kind of political movement. And it, it's very exciting to see her. Um, taking it outside of the areas where the media sort of tells you it can work into the areas where the media tells you it can't work uh, and, and kind of showing that there's a, an appetite for this kind of politics there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so one comparison that political pundits have made is saying that uh, DSA in 2018 and the Democrats is like the Tea Party in 2010 and the Republicans and uh you know, the Tea Party uh, has been wildly successful, although I guess, <laughs> I mean, their original, like, right. claimed policy position was mainly around, like, federal debt. Right. And so, like, that got worse, but no one really seems to actually care about that. Right. Um, but if we're if the policy is just electing very, very conservative people, like, they've been wildly successful. And, you know, there's a number of, uh, you know, dozens of people in Congress now who carry the Tea Party mantle. So do you, do you see a comparison here? Like, is this the beginning of this a kind of counter, you know, wave on the left? There's like a really crucial difference between the Tea Party and the DSA. And, you know, I live in Texas where, where uh, the Tea Party has like substantial control over the state government and, and the, the people that we send to the federal government. Uh, and, and you kind of touched on it, which is like the, the Tea Party, their, their stated stance, which is, you know, that this deficit has gotten out of hand and we have to do something about this deficit, um, you know, was always fundamentally dishonest, right? Um, they were motivated as much by racial animus towards the president than they were towards like, you know, actual concern for the size of the deficit. Mm -hmm. And, and like you said, you know. Tea Party uh, Republicans voted overwhelmingly in favor of Donald Trump's tax cuts. Um, they they they're a fundamentally dishonest movement, and and that's because of where they get their funding sources, right? 
um, that in, in large part the Tea Party isn't a democratic membership organization. It's people who are being, you know, the the, the term astroturf gets thrown around, and, and and I think that's fair to use, like the Koch brothers or or whichever or Sheldon Adelson or whichever other sources of right wing money kind of like funded that, and Fox News gave it a megaphone, and it it it, it sort of it had a lot of establishment support. Whereas DSA is a democratic organization, it's a membership organization where the members sort of uh, dictate the the politics of the organization. You know, we're not taking corporate money. We don't have access to a cable news station. <laughs> um, and we're also like, you know, we're doing a lot of work outside of the realm of electoral politics. There are definitely people within DSA who see the point of DSA as realigning the Democratic Party and turning it into a left party. But that's not a... Um, not everyone in the uh, DSA is, is sort of united around that. I'm not particularly interested in working to realign the Democratic Party. Um, you know, what, what we're interested in doing is building a, a broader democratic socialist movement in which uh, the level of participation is really high. Uh, the level of influence that rank and file members have is really high over the, the course and direction of the organization. Uh, so I, I don't, I, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's definitely a comparison you hear a lot. Um, uh, you especially hear it a lot from people who aren't really, uh, a part of the organization and, and don't seem to have a great grasp over how the organization works or what it does. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's clearly having an effect on, uh, some democratic parties around the country. Um, and, and it's definitely bringing, uh, left ideas and socialist ideas into mainstream discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, what, so what are some of the non-electoral uh, things that DSA does? Sure. Um, so uh, one thing that, that sort of uh, has gotten a lot of attention, a lot of chapters have put on um, free brake lights clinics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea behind these is that uh, police officers use... Uh, you know, uh, uh, dead tail lights, brake lights, uh, that are out as a, a pretext to pull people over. Um, and they do this specifically, uh, you know, it's heavily racialized. Uh, they, they do it to, to harass black people and, uh, and immigrants. Um, and by doing these sort of free brake light clinics, DSA is trying to provide a service to the community but a service that's that's political rather than, you know, in the way that a lot of like charities and, and NGOs work where it's a it's a service, but it's apolitical. It's stepping in where the market isn't um, isn't effective. We're, we're trying to, I guess, kind of make the 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 cruelty of, of, of that system or, or the or the inhumanity of it um, kind of more tangible and bring attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one thing that we do that's not electoral. Uh, you know, there are chapters who are involved in, in direct action. Um, DSA Portland was really involved in an occupation of an ICE building or, or the area around an ICE building mm-hmm. that shut an ICE office for a few days. Um, similarly, uh, DSA members in San Antonio, you know, an hour south of, or hour and a half, half south of where I'm at right now, 
uh, are involved in an occupation of an ice building over there. Um, so, so there's a real variety of sort of like tactics and strategies that, uh, different chapters of the organizations and the, and the national organization, you know, chooses to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, we'll only talk about direct action a little bit more. So the other thing that happened in the past month or so that, uh, got DSA in the news was this protest, um, uh, at the, of the, uh, Homeland Security Secretary, uh, whose name I think is Kirsten Nielsen, although there's a J in there, so I don't know exactly how it's pronounced, but she was... You know, even... I was going to bring that up, but I couldn't, I didn't want to try and pronounce her name until you did it. <laughs> yeah, I saw, I'm not sure. Okay, Secretary Nielsen was dining, mm-hmm. uh, was dining out at a fancy restaurant, and, uh, some DSA members from the, uh, Washington, D.C. chapter, uh, found out about this from someone in the restaurant, and, went and uh, started, you know, yelling and chanting and, uh, and, you know, kind of chased her out of the, of the restaurant and this got captured on video. Um, mm-hmm. So what, so uh, what did you think about that kind of tactic? Yeah. I mean, that, that's another, you know, sort of tactic that, that chapters are doing. They're, they're confronting powerful people directly. Um, that, that's another thing that I think, sort of uh, before Ocasio-Cortez had DSA in the media uh, and, and getting a lot of attention from this sort of like places where traditionally, you know, there's not a lot of attention paid to socialist organizations. Um, but I, I think there's like a, um, you know, like there's, there's a barbarism at the heart of what, not just the Trump administration, you know, all previous administrations, immigration, um, um, sort of policy is, mm-hmm. uh, and, and people are, are sort of being, I think people are tired of civility or of like calling your, your, you know, calling your congressperson or whatever as the, the only option that is given to you when, when you're faced with something as, as like horrible as family separation and, and, uh, family detention and, and the detention of asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think people are are interested in this sort of action uh, and interested in, in DSA as an organization that's participating in this sort of action um, because the 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 kind of ways that are are the the avenues for legitimate political discourse uh, are, are are so clearly inadequate to to the era that we're living in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of like ambivalent about those kind of tactics. And the other famous one was um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders getting ejected from a you know fancy restaurant in Virginia by the owner. And that you know that was like that story was like all consuming for like a week. It was kind of right. crazy, but um, it, you know for something that was not not actually a big deal at all. Um, right. But you know it, it allows so there's a, like a visceral like thrill to see like the these awful people who are bullies and are you know uh wrecking wrecking our democracy uh you know have people shouting at them or have them turned out on the street and have something like shitty happen to them that's like one one thousandth one thousandth of what they're doing to uh many other people across the country um but at the same time it like allows them to play the victim uh it makes it seem like you know, they're under siege. Um, you know, it, it's it, like Huckabee Sanders did a tweet the next day that was, you know, attracted a lot of retweets from people on the right, uh, you know, comp- making herself to be the, you know, she did nothing wrong and she's the victim of this 
this circumstance. And then it's, you know, and then we're talking about ejecting her from the restaurant instead of talking about the children being separated from their migrant parents. So, mm. so I can't decide. <laughs> um, you know, I think if I, if I saw Kirsten Nielsen on the street and I could identify her, who she was, I would yell, fuck you or something like that. Sure. But, but um, you know, like, uh, I wouldn't spit on her, I don't think, <laughs> because that maybe crosses the line. Um, but then at the same time, thinking like, well, we're, we seem to be living in extraordinary times. And, you know, the, the, we're not sure whether the continuing with the ordinary way things are done is going to be enough to, like, uh, change the negative direction. So, yeah, right. <laughs> that's, I guess that's, um, I'm caught in confusion or something. Sure. And, and I think, like, to a large extent, the, the, I mean, the right wing in this country is always going to play the victim. You know, they control the entire government right now. They um, control a lot of the kind of ideological apparatus of the country in, in terms of, like, the media and the churches. Uh, um, you know, they're always going to pretend that, that it's, it's, you know, wealthy people and white people who are under siege in this country and not working people and, and people of color. Um, and, and I, I don't know that, that confronting them in a restaurant, it, it really, um, solidifies that argument in the eyes of their base any more than that argument is already solidified. But I think what it, what it does do is, is, you know, they, 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 any kind of like powerful person or, or person in government relies on this, um, on, you know, the consent of the governed and this, um, this illusion of authority or, or illusion of, of um, legitimacy and by confronting these people directly and, and letting lots of people on the internet or, or, or in the media see that these are, are, are people just like we are and, and that they, there's no special aura to them and that, that being part of the government doesn't, doesn't make them infallible or, or give them some kind of um, divine right to govern um, and I, I think it, it, it can be effective in activating people, uh, to get organized and, and participate in, um, you know, like, I mean, the, the DSA saw a big membership, uh, bump after, um, the director of Homeland Security was confronted at that restaurant. Um, like if, if that sort of thing inspires people to get organized and, and go further than that and, and do more you know, quote unquote, serious political work or, or, or get involved with an organization and, and help support an organization that's doing real political work. Uh, I, I think it's a pretty effective tactic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the other, the other way this could be, this kind of stuff could be effective is like, um, you know, Huckabee Sanders and Nielsen are not going to like be in these jobs forever. Someone else is going to have to take them. And then that person has got to think about what their life is really going to be like if uh, people are shouting at them on the street or uh, they're being ejected from nice restaurants, um, do they really want to work in the Trump administration? There's been some stories about like, you know, the, the lower level people in the Trump white house who we wouldn't know who they are, um, who usually you get to, you work in the white house for a couple of years and then like you move to a sweet gig at a a lobby firm or consulting firm or business or something. And and these, uh, you know, young conservatives are having a tough time getting that job out uh, next job after the White House. So that's a very good thing for, for all people concerned. Yeah. And uh, they need, you know, to have, keep the government functioning, they need humans in there to do the jobs. And if the uh, pool of people that they're drawing from 
is like, you know, the people, <laughs> intelligent people who just think, you know, I don't need this grief. I'll, I'll wait for the next conservative administration um, that isn't run by a, uh, you know, moron grifter to, uh, uh, to get my job. Then, yeah, that, that helps gum up the works of all the, all the bad things the Trump administration is trying to do. Which is why it's so frustrating to see, like, uh, you know, now that, that Donald Trump is so, like, nakedly fascist, uh, so, so nakedly, like, grotesque in his governance, that just see, like, centrists and even liberals sort of um, rehabilitating George Bush and mm-hmm. say, well, we didn't have it that bad in, in you know, 2003, 2004. Um, and even like rehabilitating Bill Clinton and, and, and making justifications for the, the expansion of, of mass incarceration and the gutting of the welfare state. Um, really none of these people should be able to go out and eat at a restaurant in peace. But, uh, if it's, if it's just Trump administration officials, I'll take it for now. Okay. That's a good start. So, so, uh, so speaking of the welfare state, um, you know, how do you, is there a difference between democratic socialism and social democracy in the European sense? Because uh, it's... Yeah. Sorry, well, yeah, that, I guess that's the basic question. Like, what, same thing or different thing? I, I think definitely a different thing. Um, you know, like anything else, there's 47,000 uh, DSA members and probably 47,000 different answers to this. Um, but, you know, social democratic parties in... in Europe were a, a mixture of of people who wanted to go far beyond capitalism and then a right wing of these parties that were concerned with uh, just kind of reforming capitalism or making it um, more tolerable. And then, you know, gradually as, as the 60s turned into the 70s and the 70s turned into 80s, um, sort of abandoned even the goal of reforming capitalism. Um, DSA is an anti-capitalist uh, organization. Uh, you know, we want, when we say democratic socialism, we mean democracy, not just in terms of electoral democracy and electing officials, but, but democratic control of, of the economy and, and of production and of, of society writ large. Um, so, so we're not, um, you know, we're not New Deal liberals, uh, even though a lot of the things we're, we're working towards like Medicare for All, which is one of our, our big campaigns, are things that you would traditionally associate with uh, liberalism or, or social democracy. Uh, we see these as as uh, necessary reforms and, and the first step to democratizing the entirety of, of society and production. Okay, so going so yeah, so going beyond the, the like generous welfare state and like state ownership of some you know some areas that you see in, in northern, northern Europe and, uh, some small other places. Um, you know, let, let's talk about Medicare for all. Um, you know, for, for years, this was called single payer. And I thought that that was like such a stupid thing because no one knows <laughs> what that meant. And I didn't like when I got to college, like maybe that's the first time I heard of single payer. And I didn't understand. I was like, why? Like, am I the single payer? Like I'm like, <laughs> I only pay once or something. It's just like the worst possible name. Like, like, I, so I thought universal Medicare, should be the term is become Medicare for all, which is more or less the same thing. Um, you know, the, the last giant political fight that like split the country into was over Obamacare. And mm-hmm. this was like a huge, you know, we all remember it, it, huge fight. It like barely passed. They had to use these parliamentary tricks to get it finally passed. 
and then there was a giant backlash, Supreme Court, blah, blah, blah. It went, it went into effect. There were some mistakes at the beginning. People got mad. You know, re- more Republicans were elected to Congress. And then it seemed to be like in 2015, 16, it seemed to be like, okay, this is, seems to be working. Okay. Like as it was intended. Um, but also like, you know, anytime you try to pass healthcare legislation, it's like really, really, really difficult. Um, and I, like kind of the center left pundit, like I remember like Matt Iglesias wrote a post that says something like, um, you know, after Obamacare passed, he said something like, well, the, the American welfare state is complete or, or something or like, we're basically done. We can tinker around the edges, but like, Ugh. it's done. Um, so he was wrong. Um, and yeah, but I guess it's also like, I, like, I feel the urgency of doing this, but also it's like, our system is so crazy and it's so hard to get anything actually done. And this like quarter way reform that kept the insurance industry intact and subsidized the insurance industry, like, was opposed entirely by the conservative party. And since we have all these other problems, like, is this the thing that, like, should, should, if there's a Democratic president, Democratic Congress, should they, like, dive back in to do Medicare for all? Or should, like, you know, focusing on something else like climate change, like, should that be the focus? I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in in Medicare for all as, 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 like, probably the most transformational and the most winnable fight for Democratic socialists to take up right now. Um, you know, like, like year after year when they release the end of year polls about what voters number one concern are, uh, the price of, of healthcare is always number one, um, or, or sometimes, you know, just under number one. And, and a large part of why Obamacare is, or the ACA was, was so unpopular is that it didn't really do very much to address that, right? It, it expanded healthcare, uh, to some people, but created these, these sort of marketplace plans that were often, you know, um, not actually usable for the people who, who had them. I remember a time in my life paying like $163 a month for something that, um, like the deductible was like six or $7,000 a year. Uh, copays were enormous and I was making, you know, I was making like $15 an hour, which is pretty good and still really couldn't uh, afford to use uh, the healthcare that I had. So it just kind of sat there in case I was hit by a truck or something. Right. Um, now I never, you know, I don't think I ever went to the doctor on that healthcare. Um, so it's not really healthcare, right? Um, one of the reasons why we think like Medicare for all, which would be truly universal and cover everyone, not just everyone who could afford, um, to pay it or everyone in the state where they bothered to expand Medicaid, but, but literally everyone in the country, uh, including non-citizens um, would have healthcare that's free at the point of service. You know, we think that's the sort of non-reformist reform that, that enormous numbers of people can get behind. Obamacare didn't really have a constituency other than, you know, recent college graduates who could stay on their parents' uh, health insurance for a few extra years. There was no one who, who felt Obamacare as like a new right or, or, or a new guarantee of, of their well-being. Mm-hmm. Well, I would I would disagree with that part because, I mean, people with pre-existing conditions or sure. very, very expensive conditions, so they removed the lifetime cap and made it so you couldn't be charged for pre-existing conditions. So I think, you know, if you, depending on how broadly you define pre-existing condition, it could be like half or more of American citizens. Um, 
who who that helped and you know the pre-existing condition thing seems to be like the most popular aspect of it and whenever there's a there's a challenge to obamacare that's the thing that like people rally around is like because it like even even people who you know think medicare for all would be socialized medicine are discomfited by the idea that if you were born with a you know a congenital disease you're going to be charged more for it through no fault of your own and and that that uh you know the uh that ailment in particular might not be covered by by your insurance so that like everyone agrees that's uh amoral sure. um so it so it accomplished that um but that's, no, you're, that's right. like you know not <laughs> that's not universal care right uh and it's still not necessarily affordable care or or care that you can actually use you know um and then there's still uh tens of millions of people in this country who have no health insurance at all um it's especially with the sort of like kind of continually rising costs of uh, health insurance premiums. Um, you end up with, especially in like, like rural areas, just the uh, providers leaving the, the market entirely so that even if you can afford health insurance or, or even if you have a pre existing condition that is now covered uh, if you're, if the closest hospital to you is 150 miles away, um, you know, it, it's, it's really kind of theoretical to say that you have health care. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in, in our, in our view, um, Medicare for all by being truly universal and by eliminating the profit motive from providers, uh, and, and, um, and, and giving it to everyone, uh, that, that making it free at the point of service. So, whether you have like a, a sprained ankle or a cancer scare, you can still you don't have to wonder about well how sick am I really how how serious is this do I really need to go in do I really want to spend the seventy five dollars or one hundred and fifty dollars on this copay you can just go in and 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 get real care um, that's about making sure you're well. Mm-hmm. Um, would you want something like the um the UK model of uh, state employed doctors or something like the Canadian model that I think is also called Medicare. Um, mm-hmm. That is more like just, so the, I, I think the the payment is from the government. Sure. So the Medicare for all the DSA is asking for is a, it's like a five point program that we're, it's sort of like the, you know, they're, there are five things that we want out of uh, what we're asking for now. So it's not a national health service uh, style um, program, although I think probably if you asked 100 DSA members whether they prefer the NHS or the Canadian system, 99 or 100 of them would say NHS. But what we're asking for is is, um, is single payer rather than um, um, a, a fully uh, government owned and run uh, health care mm-hmm. Uh, system. Okay. Um, yeah, it seems it seems very very difficult that, that, uh, of it that it could actually happen anytime soon. I you know, like just I said before, you know uh, the you know there's the legislative filibuster, there's the Supreme Court, there's all these things that everyone knows about why you know you know Wyoming gets two senators. You know, all the, all these things may, are stumbling blocks for for this ever happening. So I I, I would like it to happen, but. Um, the, I, I guess where where I, I think where sort of like socialist politics 
and, and where DSA in particular sees this as, as um, maybe more possible than it, it seems under the current political reality. If you, you know, like Richard Nixon desegregated the schools uh, in um, West Virginia recently. There was this big t- teacher strike and a very reactionary state legislature um, passed across the board raises to not just teachers, but all uh, state employees. Uh, if there's actually real organized popular pressure, there's the, the, the kind of flexibility of what, like the, the, the horizons of what becomes possible expands, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the United States in most of my lifetime, very few people are, are organized and active politically. You know, unions have been in retreat. Um, and even like, like the, the biggest upsurge I can think of is sort of the 2008 Obama campaign where lots of people flooded into his campaign apparatus. And then once he became president, he sort of, uh, uh, dissolved Obama for America. And, and a lot of the people who got involved were demobilized. Um, what DSA is trying to do and, and in, in conjunction with a lot of other kind of allied organizations is build a more, um, lasting and, and deliberately permanent organization mobilization, um, so that we can, we can actually push people, uh, uh, to do things that they're not inclined to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, I want to ask about, you said you, in our conversation before this, you said you didn't know a ton about it, but I'm interested in your perspective on how, um, uh, social media in particular, Twitter, and also the popular podcast, uh, Chapo Trap House, have affected recent um, trends in uh, in uh, DSA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know how much or, or, or what exactly to say about that. Uh, it's definitely, I mean, you know, it, it's hugely popular among members, especially younger members, uh, and and a lot of DSA's growth in the past few years has been among uh, young people and and you know college campuses. Uh, we have a youth section uh, called YDSA um, that's really sort of expanded enormously. Um, I think, you know, I, I, in, in my experience, it's not a, a, a huge factor in terms of what we do as an organization or what we talk about at DSA meetings. Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely a thing that a lot of people are fans of. Um, I know that, like, uh, kind of... Twitter culture was was big in, in sort of introducing people to the idea of DSA as an organization that they might want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in my view or, or in my experience, it, it doesn't really – like it, it helps people maybe get into the organization, uh, but I, I don't feel that it has a ton – of bearing on what the organization actually does, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Um, and I'm, also, I, I'm also old, so, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, and, you know, you see people with a rose emoji in their display name or who have DSA in their uh, bio or something. And, um, you know, some of these people uh, talk about, you know, organizing efforts they do and stuff like that. And then there's also people who just are more like a normal Twitter person and that they just want to like fight with other people and sure. argue and yell and have fun, you know, dunking on people and stuff like that. So yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely that. And like uh, some of it, it seems, seems basically negative to me. Um, 
but I mean, what would these people be doing otherwise? Maybe they'd be like dunking on people about basketball or video games or something, and they just decided to dunk on people about uh, socialist politics. So right. I don't know. It seems it seems yeah, it's somewhere yeah, like a way into the door, but also somewhat of a sideshow uh, right. that some people can get caught up in. And and in the in the you know positive side of it is is I think that a lot of sort of um, kind of centrist media authorities, uh, uh, figures like like Matt Iglesias, who you mentioned, who I think probably had a lot of a lot of uh, cachet during the uh, Obama era, uh, who were maybe um, putting forward some pretty bad political ideas that were going largely unchallenged uh, among liberals and among like left liberals uh that stuff is really being challenged now and those the the people who are making kind of like what i would call like bullshit centrist article uh bullshit centrist arguments uh receive a ton of pushback on that uh and and i think there's probably some value in poking holes through that kind of uh uh stuff where where it gets bad is when it kind of you know where the 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 kind of like Twitter folks kind of start to, to eat themselves or eat each other. Um, but yeah, I, I, there's probably some benefit for it. And there, I think it's definitely responsible for at least some part of the membership growth. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up Iglesias again. Uh, I've noticed, I've been reading him, uh, I guess for over a decade and definitely in, in recent in the re- recent years, like the past year or so, he's been moving further left than he used to be. And I don't know if he is just a savvy guy who put his finger to the wind and decided that the you know readership and clicks would be more uh, towards the left than towards you know like the, the technocratic neoliberalism that he espoused uh, in an earlier part of his career or whether he's had some genuine, <laughs> come, come to, uh, you know, come to Lenin moment of, uh, <laughs> moving, moving to the left. But, um, yeah, he's definitely, he, yeah, he's, he's like arguing for, he's, he's kind of mimicking some of the things that, uh, lefties on Twitter say and do, and seems to be arguing for more, uh, far left policies than, than he would have like three years ago. Um, so, you know, when, when Ocasio-Cortez won, you saw a reaction among some conservatives of being like, socialism? Don't you know that Stalin killed 20 million people? Um, and you see that, you continue to see that online. Uh, a slightly, there was a tweet just from yesterday that is the slight, that is a more intelligent version of that. And that, this is from a guy whose name is Kevin Wynn, I assume that's how you pronounce his last name, and he's an editor at GQ. He tweeted, white people need to get less angry when I tell them my parents fled communism. Um, so what do you, what's, what do you think about that? This, you know, the critique is like, you know, the, 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 the Soviet gulag, uh, murdered thousands and, you know, Stalin was very bad and we know what happened, uh, in other, um, countries that were ruled by communism. And what, what do you see as the connection between democratic socialism and, you know, the communism of the 20th century? Sure. I'm not going to like, make apologies for the excesses of communist organization or communist, uh, governments in, in history. Um, but it is, it is like, it's a little grating how the, um, the atrocities that happen under these historical, um, <coughs> groups 
are are uh, attributed to like the economic and political form, um, but the sort of like. I mean, like the era we're living under right now is incredibly brutal, right? Like, like family separations and mass incarceration uh, are are like terrible atrocities uh, that that we as socialists attribute in in part to the capitalist system and to the capitalist state. Um, and and I, I don't know that it's um, reasonable to attribute um, like. We're we're not a uh, Stalinist organization. We're not a um, for the most part a Marxist-Leninist organization. Uh, there's certainly people in the uh, in the organization who are are maybe bigger proponents of that style of socialism than than I would be, uh, and I don't I don't want to speak for them. But I, I think my response to that sort of criticism would be to highlight the continued atrocities of capitalist regimes and like European colonialist regimes uh, and imperialism still going on now. Um, and, and kind of like, you know, I, I don't want to downplay the idea that this person's family had to, had to flee, but there are families fleeing places around the world that the United States is intervening in mm-hmm. or, or has a, a hand in destabilizing uh, and that's as much a result of capitalism as, um, you know, the excesses of Stalinism are a result of, of socialism or communism. Mm-hmm. Um, so you wrote an essay that you posted on Medium, and we'll link to it, um, uh, called An Electoral Strategy for Austin DSA, and mm-hmm. it was kind of split in multiple parts, but the, the first part was kind of your analysis of like whether like how DSA should interact with the democratic party. Um, and I thought it was interesting and has applicability you know, beyond Austin DSA. Um, so can you kind of outline, uh, that argument? Sure. I, I think like in, in, um, like probably one of the most contentious arguments in DSA chapters across the country uh, and certainly in Austin DSA is exactly how we should think about and work with uh, the Democratic Party. Um, the the historical DSA, the DSA, um, let, let's say the, the pre-Bernie DSA, was very invested in kind of realignment strategies uh, and working through the internal bureaucracy of the DSA and trying to move, or sorry, the internal bureaucracy of the Democratic Party and trying to move the Democratic Party left. Uh, DSA gets its start in 1982, and it has a, a couple predecessor organizations. One of which is DSOC, which gets its start earlier, uh, and, and they're they're really involved in in trying to move the Democratic Party to the left and turning it into like a broadly European style social democratic party with like a committed group of socialists at the very left of it who are dictating um, or, or helping influence a lot of the Democratic Party direction. Um, in, in my view, and I want to stress, this is really just my view and not like, not Austin DSA's view or DSA, the national organization's view. Um, but in my view, there's, there's some really hard limits to what you can accomplish within, uh, the Democratic Party because in addition to elected officials, um, and, and sort of like 
the internal party bureaucrats, you know, or, or, or even internal party activists like, um, um, you know, precinct chairs and, 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 uh, heads of, of state democratic party committees and, and, and things like that, that you can kind of, um, contest for power within like, you know, within a democratic structure, you know, you go to the state convention and you nominate yourself for this and say, I'm a socialist and I think you should put a socialist in charge of the, the rules committee on uh, you either win or lose. But in, in addition to those, there's, there's an enormous amount of, um, kind of external pressures to the, the democratic party. Um, you know, specifically, a, a wealthy donor class, um, that's sort of around like the finance industry and the tech industry and the entertainment industry and the healthcare industry, uh, that put really hard limits to what Democrats are allowed to do. And, and part of how they do this is by, um, you know, like there, there are groups like the Center for American Progress, uh, which is a, a group that isn't democratically elected, but has an enormous amount of influence over the direction of the Democratic Party. Uh, and there's a whole litany of alphabet soup groups that I'm not going to be able to come up with off the top of my head uh, that do similar things. Uh, and there's a there's a lot of millionaires and billionaires who give lots of money to these organizations and in exchange for that get to sit on the boards of these organizations or, or make suggestions or appointments to the, the boards of these organizations and uh, influence their, like, their policy and their uh, political orientation. And those groups in turn have an enormous effect over the Democratic Party. Um, so, like, if we as DSA uh, endorse someone who says they're a socialist and, and you know, we, we go out and we, we knock on a bunch of doors and we hold a bunch of events, maybe we raise a little bit of money for them, and we get them elected and they, they take their place in Washington, um, all of a sudden all of these other structures, these other forces can put their, um, their money and influence, they can bring it to bear on these elected officials. Um, so I, I, I'm skeptical of, of realignment strategies um, and, and of trying to like move the Democratic Party to the left. Uh, I think DSA's work should be towards movement building and building a socialist movement and creating a, a resilient and independent democratic socialist of America that uses the democratic ballot line strategically. Um, you know, like, like Ocasio-Cortez, right? She's not, uh, a democratic party insider. She's going up against the democratic party insider. Um, and, and, you know, or I think you're seeing a little bit now that, that like making sure that, that she sort of, adheres to our values and continues to adhere to our values as she enters Washington is going to be a difficult task. Uh, and I think we need to build the socialist movement, uh, and, and the strengths of our, our own organization. Um, if we're going to be serious about doing that task. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a very interesting problem and you lay it out well, and I encourage people to check out the essay. Um, and just to mention, uh, Matt Iglesias, again, he used to work for the Center for American Progress. He was a blogger there, sure. like, you know, around like 2008, 2010. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we're, uh, you know, so this is like what, it seems like from my, from how I'm understanding you, you are not, uh, endorsing like a Tea Party type model where we can say that like the Tea Party came and took over you know, took over the Republican Party like a 
you know, bacteria infesting a host or something. And, and, uh, you know, now they have their congressmen are running committees and have powerful roles. And, you know, Trump isn't like, you can't really put him in Tea Party because right. he doesn't, in my opinion, doesn't really believe anything, but he has broadly right. similar outlook and he's a racist and, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, so you, you basically say like that can't happen with the Democrats because, um, it's a much more diverse coalition and there are, there are <laughs> socialists can't take over the Democrats because there are a number of very, very wealthy people who are intrinsically opposed to, uh, socialism who are connected to the Democrat democratic party through fundraising and the think tanks and, uh, you know, the elected officials like cash out after they leave office and they go work at, uh, in some job where they can make a lot of money. Um, is, is that, am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, and, and, and to go back to the Tea Party example, like, the, the Tea Party was very acceptable to the donor class of the Republican Party, right? In, in, in large part, it was, it was funded, and, and uh, you know, they have their own network of think tanks that were funded by the same people who fund traditional uh, Republicans, uh, whereas I, I think socialist politics are really unacceptable to say the financial industry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the financial industry's ability to influence the Democratic Party, both through direct donations to candidates, but also through, you know, this this network and web of think tanks and, and liberal NGOs and charity organizations, um, political staffers, political consultants, uh, you know, the, the whole, like, broad cloud that surrounds the Democratic Party and that makes it work. Um, I, I think uh, if we want to be serious about realignment par- uh, politics, um, we have to think about how we're going to displace those groups. Uh, and, and I think a Tea Party model would not allow us to, to do that. So, so I'm, not, I'm not, I wouldn't advocate a, a Tea Party of the left style strategy. But there are definitely people within DSA who, who do think that that's a workable strategy and, and who are definitely doing work in that direction. Um, and, you know, they're all committed organizers and, and are, you know, they're having some degree of success in some ways and, and some failures in other ways. And, you know, I, I, I think uh, the only way we're going to figure out what the general orientation of DSA is going to be in the years to come is by having these political arguments and making democratic decisions, you know, as DSA among our membership. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a, that sounds like a good place to end things. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? Uh, join DSA. That's pretty good. Um, <laughs> it's also like, it, it's, it's a, a, like the culture within DSA is pretty good. There are definitely people, um, uh, there are definitely arguments and, and, you know, we're, we're not a perfect organization, but it's a it's a well organization. Chapters around the country make it easy um, for people to to join and get involved and get to know people within the organization. And um, we're not we're we're definitely not going to beat capitalism and we're not going to beat Trump unless we're legitimately organized. And and I think DSA is probably the place to do that right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and from what I've heard um, about DSA, it, it does have this uh, like social component that. I almost like harken to me. It sounds more like something from like the 1950s of like 
like Elks Club, like almost it just like, you know, we live in a much more atomized society than 50 years ago. And here's like a place where like minded people can can get together. That isn't isn't the Internet. Um, so right. That. Yeah. It's, that part has has appeal. Um, so, uh, James, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to uh, speak to me and our listeners and viewers. Um, are you on Twitter? I can't remember. Uh, let's say no. Okay, not on Twitter. Um, but if you want to learn more about the DSA, I assume it's dsa.org. Is that right? Uh, dsausa.org. Okay. So There's what, a direct selling association that I think has a beat to the website. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's capitalism for you. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so check that out. And, and links will... Um, uh, links to all these things mentioned will be below. Um, so thank you, James. Thank you to all of our viewers and listeners. We'll see you again next time. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.